Good afternoon, everybody. Can you all hear me well right now? Thumbs up. Everybody okay with that? Excellent. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. And for those of you uh, here with us today, um, my name is Jeremiah Rotter. I'm from Calvary Bible Church there in Duffield, Virginia. For those of you over here who can't see me because of this giant microphone, I'm going to turn my face there. <laughs> I'm also Jeremiah Rotter from Calvary Bible Church. Um, our aim this afternoon, very simple, like I told um, our group earlier in the day, this passage uh, sort of on my mind and heart really as an encouragement not just to ministry leaders, but all people in local churches. And the aim is very simple, to encourage you that the good news is that the growth of the church does not rest on you. And I want you to know that. I want you to know that as you go to your local churches tomorrow and you minister and you do well and you're in obedience to Christ, that he is pleased by that because church growth is a matter of the head of the church doing it. And so as we look at our text here today out of Matthew chapter 16, we'll begin in verse 13. I want to read a couple of passages here, and then we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer as we look on this idea of the assurance of Jesus' church. Verse 13 says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to him, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for favor over our time together. Father, we love you. Give you honor and praise today. Thank you for orchestrating such a beautiful event. All the encouragement that we've already heard so far today. Thank you for the good Bible preaching and teaching and for faithful men that will stand and deliver the word correctly. Thank you for these people present here today. I ask you that you would continue to use them for your honor and for your glory in their churches and their homes and their communities. And we ask your time together here today, Lord, is not in vain that we would use it wisely to lift up you and what you've done for us. And Lord, rest on the promises that we find here in this text. And I ask, Lord, that you would just simply use me as a mouthpiece to unveil your great truth to us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I think it goes without saying, there's, uh, there's nothing quite like the church, right? <laughs> and some of y'all, if you grew up in a background like I did, there's a whole lot in that sentence. There is certainly nothing like the church. I was chatting with a gentleman there just a moment ago. I, I come from a um, more of a fundamentalist type background, um, Baptocostal, whatever you want to call that, really. And we, we saw some things. <laughs> I mean, we really saw some things. And that's why I say there's nothing quite like the church sometimes. And I look back over certain areas of ministry and I think, my goodness, I'd like to have the rewind button so bad. And, 
if there was a pause button, I'd just be repeatedly hitting it and thinking, what were we doing? And yet, by grace, here we are, and God using some of that as best as he possibly could through us. And I look at this text and I think, that's been going on from the beginning. Here we have a man named Peter he's addressing here. And even after this great revelation, Peter's going to do some of the most foolish things in the name of the church here. And we are constantly reminded that, thank God, the church is not built on us, but it is built on the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect finished work. And so as we look at the text here, I'm reminded of a quote by John MacArthur. He said, the highest price ever paid was paid for the church. We purchased not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful statement and very true. And so today here as ministers and members of local churches and really everything in between, I'm not sure that your position and what it may be in your local church, but thank God for that. And so I think today it's imperative that we know that not only the, the value of the redeemed people of God called the church, but also how assured we are that Jesus has bought it and that Jesus is building it and that Jesus Christ is going to bring it home to be with him forever. So let's look at our text here today as we see that. Matthew 16, great insight here in this entire process as Jesus himself is going to give us this assurance concerning his bride, the church, and particularly to Peter. And then ultimately we are graced here with the ability to read through this. And so verse 13 tells us that he came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. There could not have been a better ideal setting for this. Caesarea Philippi is a very interesting place. It's about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, but it's primarily made up of non-Jewish people at this time. So if you get your mind's eye with me here for just a second, here Jesus is conversing with his disciples, teaching, and he's going to use this setting as a perfect model. So as you can imagine them gathered around our Lord listening to what he has to say, the background all around them is very interesting, but at the same time, the perfect place for Christ to explain what he's going to here. And so this area is dominated by idolatry. I mean, just, it's steeped in pagan worship, literally just littered all over the place with uh, temples of Baal worship. There's also, a, at this time, you would have seen a deep cavern. Uh, it was said to be the birthplace of a god named Pan or Pan, however you want to pronounce that. They considered the god of nature. As a matter of fact, that's exactly uh, what this area's original name was. It was Panius. It was literally named after this, this pagan area, so to speak. And later on, we would see it renamed. That's why you see it here, Caesarea Philippi, because a giant temple, this large white marble temple had been erected in honor of Caesar Augustus because he himself considered himself to be a deity. And so we have all of this idol worship going on around these men. And here is the scene we see here for Jesus to lay out the truth about the church. So lots of building, lots of idolatry in the background Jesus gives here to them is perfect as he pits. And think about this, the world's foolish attempt at building that they can clearly see in front of them and Christ is going to show them the comparison though of what he builds which is his perfect church and notice that contrast as we work our way through the text as these men would look in the background at this attempt of mankind to create deities to create idols and all this false worship and then here's the true and living savior telling them but there is a greater thing that is being built, and it's starting within you and your hearts 
through his word. So with that in mind, let's look at just how Jesus would explain how that's going to be done. And the way I want to phrase it to everybody as we work through this text is, I want to look at it from the vantage point of what the church is not built on as we look at it from that vantage point. So staying with me here, verse 13, he asked him, who do men say that I am? And in verse 14, they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And the first point to make here is that we, we need to be assured that Jesus Christ's church is not built on opinions. Please know that Jesus is not building the church on opinions. I say that because all these men that are mentioned here are good and important men. They're men that you and I have gleaned from. I think about the life of Elijah, and I'm boosted in my faith when I hear about Elijah. Ahab and Jezebel and standing for truth in a world that's just gone mad. And I think, man, we need more men like that. There it is. Just a, a bold, just full of faith man walking the hillside, telling the truth to people claiming the word of God, miracles in his life. I mean, you read about these stories, you think, my goodness, what it would have been like to have been right there when that happened, fire from heaven there on the mountainside. What a, what a scene. And you think, man, Elijah's a good man. He loves God. He's seen things of God that many of us would just give anything to see. I look at the other passage here, and you see they talk about John the Baptist, just this preacher of preachers out in the wilderness calling people to repent and people coming to faith. They are believing. They're repenting of sins. They're being baptized. And you think, wow, what it would have been like to have been there by the riverside as you hear this man just unfold the word of God as being revealed to him and ushering in the kingdom. And here another man, arguably the greatest name in the Bible, Jeremiah, right? You can laugh at that. That's all right. Now, I have to resonate with him. My mom and dad thought it good enough. He was such a good man. We should name our firstborn after this guy. And so here I am today with that name. And that is, that's exactly what they said. We love his words. And you read back over Jeremiah and you think, what a prophet. What a man that, you know, they refer to him as the weeping prophet. And a man that he saw so much negativity in his life, but yet faithfulness to God, that the Lord would continue to move amongst so much negative, sinful living. And again, I mentioned that, and he goes on to say about these minor prophets, and we bring all that up to tell you there's nothing wrong with these men. I think it would have been an honor to be compared to them. But it is the wrong answer, though. The crowds of this day are seeking and believing for something that Jesus Christ is not bringing. Jesus himself said that he came into this world to seek and to save that which is lost. And yet they are going around saying, well, Lord, they're telling us that you feel more like a, a good preacher. You're a miracle worker. You say a lot of great things like the prophets. Nobody spake like Jesus spake, the scriptures tell us. And yet therein lies the problem. They're looking for something that he's not bringing. And the kingdom of God, folks, is not, trust me, built on opinions of mankind. Oftentimes we have to come to this reality that much of majority opinion sometimes in this world is absolutely wrong. Although many hold to it, I hate to tell you that oftentimes many people can be very, very, very wrong. Certainly about the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw him in this fashion as some kind of national reformer. 
He's going to bring economic change. He's going to stand up to evil rulers and corruption. He's going to work miracles. He's going to speak truth to power. What a famous statement we like to throw around today. And the only problem with that is Jesus is infinitely more than that. Yes, he is those things, but he is so much more than those things right there. And there, if you think about it, there would be no prophets if there was not Jesus Christ. There's nothing to prophesy about if there's no Jesus Christ. So what they're comparing him to, very, very small, shallow things. And yet the people, they had their opinion about the Lord, much like they do today. And we hear it all the time. They have a, they have a version of Jesus. He's on a T-shirt. He's JC. He's my friend. He's the big guy upstairs. And all this nonsense that people ascribe to him that is just so beneath our Lord and Savior. And sadly, again, many of these people are actually trying to build quote-unquote churches around that type of idea. And we have to come to the conclusion that is not a biblical church because it's founded on opinions. And Jesus Christ does not build his church on opinions. In fact, the assurance Jesus gives us first and foremost is that the church is founded on who he truly is. And that's King of kings and Lord of lords. He's Savior. He's far more than political reformer. He's a Savior of souls. He's the Messiah. He's the cornerstone on which the entirety of the church rests and is built upon. So certainly, first, the church is not built on opinions, but secondly, look at verse 16. He goes on to say this. Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So secondly, we see here that we are assured that Jesus' church is also, and this is good news for all of us, Jesus' church is not built on you. And if I had to point out anything in this text today that you take home with you, please hear me on this point. The church is not built on you and I. Peter's confession, notice this, didn't come because of some natural intuition. This isn't something he just thought up one day. He said, you know what? I think Jesus is the Christ. So I'm just going to go with that and see how that works out for me. That is not what's happening here. It has been revealed to him by God. As a matter of fact, the Greek word they're revealing, apocalypto, it means to uncover, almost like lay open something that was veiled at one point in time. To put it straightforward to us, Peter had no idea about that truth until God himself revealed that to him. And such is the case for you and I. I was not saved because I went to church for a long time as a young man. I could have actually probably articulated some version of the gospel to you as a young man, but I had not been revealed the truth that Jesus is the Christ by the Holy Spirit. I had not been drawn to him at that time. And that's exactly what's taking place here. And we know this because the natural man simply cannot understand the things of God without divine revelation. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. I thought that. I grew up in Sunday school, heard the stories. You can't be serious that God caused the sun to stand still so that men could fight a battle. 
And I thought to myself, there's no way, because if that happened, this earth as we know it would just fall out on over itself. There's no way that Joshua marched around a city seven times, blew a bunch of trumpets, and all of a sudden these giant fortified walls just came crumbling down. I find that hard to believe. And yet after salvation, I could straight face look at you and say, he absolutely sent a giant fish and swallowed a man and spent three days and three nights in there and that man was coughed up after repentance and preached truth to an entire city and revival came and I would look at you and say yes and amen I believe that Jesus Christ walked to a tomb at one time yelled out a man named Lazarus and told him to come forth and that man got up out of the grave and walked out and I believe that 100% you said what changed Jeremiah this it's no longer folly to me. I'm no longer living in the natural man. The spiritual man has been made alive by Jesus Christ because listen to the rest of that verse in verse 14. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. What's Peter tapping in on right here? The truth because it's been revealed to him. And this truth revealed to Peter, think about this, it's a gift from God and should always be seen as a blessing. As a matter of fact, Jesus told him that. Look at verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And I want to tell that to you today, Christians. Anytime you get the truth, you are blessed. When you wake up in the morning and you're studying the Scripture, friend, you are most certainly blessed because you are hearing from God today. When you get to sit under good preaching and teaching, thank God you are blessed for that, that you now have this spiritual mind to understand this. And what is it we get to understand? Well, here it is, the truth revealed. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. That's exactly what's been revealed here to Peter. Now, the question would remain for all of us, what in the world does that mean for us, though? I mean, I know he's talking to Peter here, but can we glean from that? And the answer is very uh, most certainly yes, because Jesus is telling Peter that his church is going to be built on divine truth revealed by God. And that's the rock that he's referring to, this confession of Jesus as the Christ. Now, I know some have taken that and just ran wild with that, thinking, well, he must have been talking about Peter. But folks, even Peter didn't think he was the rock. Go and read his own writing, First and Second Peter. You, literally, you will find a man that thought that would have been outrageous to refer to him as that. And the reason I would go further and say that is this, because if that were true, you just made Jesus Christ a liar. And Jesus Christ is incapable of lying because he's incapable of sin. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, if he founded it on Peter, Peter turned right around and kept on sinning quite a bit. And if you founded the church on that man, folks, you wouldn't even have poured the footers. <laughs> it would have went to ruin immediately. You know what you would have made Jesus out to be? A liar. And Christ Jesus is not a liar. It is not founded on Peter. It's founded on the confession. And this is happening in Peter's life. Think about this. And in the lives of you and I today, by faith. This is what it means. This gift from God, Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by your opinion? Something you just want to feel? No, hearing by the word of God. What had Jesus been giving him? Day in and day out, the word revealed to Peter. What's at work here? 
faith, a measure of faith given to this man to believe. Friend, the church is not built on you and I. (laughs) It's built on the divine revelation that he's given us. And think about that remarkable gift because the better news is this. Not only do we get to be a part of this family of God, but the burden in growing this church is not on us either. Think about this for a moment. It's not based on our talent. We know that because, again, going back, if you based it on Peter, what great talent did he have? Well, none. Therefore, we know it wasn't based on Peter, and thank God it's not based on ours either. If that were the case, friend, if you didn't preach A-plus message every time, it comes falling down. And ministers, hear me, and you know this. We do not always preach A-plus. As a matter of fact, Lord willing, I'll get to preach tomorrow, and I can almost guarantee you it's not going to be A-plus. There are men all around this world that could preach circles around me. You know what the good news about that is? Jesus will build his church anyway. He is not comparing me to the great men that we see out here today or yesteryear. And I'm going to lovingly say this to you. He's not comparing you to that either. (laughs) And I thank God for that because there's a lot of men out there that could, again, do this leaps and bounds better than I can. You know what the good news is? He's not comparing them by that standard either because we'd all fall short of Jesus because nobody preaches like Jesus Christ preaches. It's not based on my cleverness. Well, I wonder how I can spin a phrase here and I can write this out and this outline will be a little bit better. I can tweak this and do that. And maybe we'll set up church this way. And we get all pragmatic about things and thinking, all right, 10 ways to this and four steps here and eight ways to that. Let me go out and buy this book and that book. And hey, church growth is not based on church growth strategies, folks. (laughs) Church growth is based on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's building the church. Friend, we have already quoted some of the great Christian leaders of all time. And do you know what they all have in common right now? They're all dead. Hate to break the news to you, but I'm going to give you some better news. Jesus kept on building the church long after them. Hey, Moses gets replaced eventually, right? But there's a Joshua. And Joshua's going to pass on, and more will come behind. And what's the key theme there? God is doing the work through them. In spite of their feebleness, in spite of their lack of giftedness, in spite of their, you know, appearance and wealth and what all these shallow things that we talk about all the time, it's all about the revealed word of the living God, specifically in and through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would say it like this. We don't have to build the church. We get to participate in it as instruments of our loving God. Tomorrow, Christian, you get to lift up the name of your Savior. You get to tell your congregation that Jesus Christ is alive and well and still saves sinners. What more news would you want to tell anybody? What more usefulness could you be to the kingdom of God? No more, because that's it. It is the greatest privilege of your life to tell this dying world that Jesus Christ saves. 
and in our feeble attempts and our different voices and our different ways of doing that and what we look like and what we don't like, he will use that. His word will not return void and he will accomplish his purposes. And I thank God that we get to live in on that. First Peter first, uh, 23 in chapter 1 says this, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Did you catch that? It's not going to be through your denomination. It's not going to be through your church building or your strategies or your programs that we created. People are born again, incorruptible seed, through the living word of God. And all around the world, that is going on right now. And what is the common theme? Jesus Christ is building the church through that living word of God. So what an honor and a privilege it is. And notice, the weight taken off that we don't have to carry. I just want to unburden you on that right now, that it is not weighing on you. And so, yes, some sow and some water, but the most important part of that is that God gives the increase. And therein is where we need to rest. And so resting in that thought to know that God's great grace, he's most assuredly going to build his church and part of that process is going to include folks like you and I proclaiming the good news. And he's going to rescue them out of their sins, and they will repent and confess Jesus Christ. And to that we say, praise his holy name. Praise his holy name for that. Verse 18, as we continue on in the latter part there, it's a very interesting point that he makes after he had just told Peter that he's so blessed that God had revealed this to him. But verse 18, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Notice the last half of this. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's another great assurance for us. Jesus' church is not going to be built on worry either. I wrote this note down, and I've been thinking about it a lot this week. It's very simple, but I think it's worth repeating. The head of the church simply will not and cannot lose. He can't. He won't. So why do we keep thinking that he might? Why do we keep thinking that, well, maybe it won't work out. Maybe this is all for naught. Maybe the church is just going to be wiped out. Maybe there's just going to be all this political upheaval and economic this and wars and famines and droughts. And we start thinking about all these different scenarios. And Jesus literally said, Peter... No matter what happens, the worst of the worst of the worst enemies is going to try to come against you, and he won't prevail. You have no greater enemy than the devil himself. And Jesus point blank tells us he doesn't stand a chance. Scripture says that at his name, demons literally tremble. Now, we may not like to talk about this much today, but folks, spiritual warfare is most certainly real. I know we like to live in our little cocoon here in America and everything's just hunky-dory, but friend, it hadn't always been that way and we're not promised it's always going to be that way. Persecution is one day away for any of us. But I'll tell you what's not one day away, but it's perfectly right now. The fact that there is nothing stopping the church of Jesus Christ. It will prevail through everything that comes its way. Interestingly enough, this is the very first mention of ecclesia in the Bible. 
So if Jesus is building it, he's also introducing the word to you. Church, this gathering of saints, these set-apart people. Not only is it the first mention of the New Testament, first mention of all the Bible, but here's the good part. It's never been erased from the earth since then. It has only been continually expounded upon that this ecclesia, this church, is going to grow and grow and grow. And here's the neat part about this. Jesus takes clear ownership of it. Notice how he tells Peter about this church. He says, I'm not going to build a church. I'm going to build my church. Now, friend, there's a big difference in a church and my church. And if a church is being built, well, you know what's going to happen. Just give it enough time and enough problems, and the next thing you know, it'll all fumble. But when Jesus says, I'm building a church, that's an exclamation mark. That's not lines in the sand. That's bedrock foundation. This is unmovable. This will continue to go. He says the gates of hell simply will not prevail against it. That is a rock-solid promise straight from the mouth of the Word in flesh for us. Jesus tells us specifically, it is not going to be overcome. But I want to sober everybody up just a little bit here and think about this. That is not going to stop hell from trying. And there are people shaking their heads right now, and I'd love to give you the microphone because you could testify to that. And you know what I'm talking about. There will be much in our lives sometimes that come against us, and it will want to break our spirit. We have all had people we care about walk out. We have all had splits in churches that we'd rather not relive. We've all had rampant sins sometimes come into the body of Christ, and it is heartbreaking to see that. But on top of that, there's even more. I mean, you look down through the annals of history for just a second at the things that have tried to come against the church. Without getting into deep history lessons, just more 30,000-foot observation here, think of all the censorship that has been done against the church. Think of all the persecution and the disease and the oppression, the martyrdom, the revolutions and wars, the splitting and divisions, even within the body. Think about this. How many false teachers have we had to run off? Whether you want to admit it or not, wolves are still at the door all the time. And it is our responsibility to make sure that they don't try to bust in. I think about all the false doctrines that we have had to fight against over the ages. And by God's grace, we have been able to defend against every single one of those. And you know why? Because the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The head of the church simply will not allow it. And on and on and on. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, here we are gathered saints, lifting up the word of God, proclaiming the good news here and abroad, worshiping the one true living God in spirit and in truth, fellowshipping with one another, praying, keeping all of his commandments and teachings, not out of legalistic obligation, but out of love for the one that loved us first. 2023 and the church of Jesus Christ, as consistent as it's ever been, you say, yeah, but this is going on here and this is going on there. And I want to remind you of what's going on in heaven, though. No hand-wringing, no plan B. You're not going over there fumbling through the files trying to figure out, well, what if this takes place? I wonder if we're going to go down this route. No, 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 friend. Plan A all day, all day plan A. And it's working great. 
We get so caught up on all these things that Christ has not said. Here's what Christ has said. The gates of hell aren't prevailing. So please rest in that. This is not a church built on defeat. I love what the words of Richard Sibbs here. He says, God is never near his church than when trouble's near. I love that. Long before problems came knocking, Jesus Christ was already there. And plan A was working just fine. So rest assured, believers, we're not defeated. We can't be defeated because the head of the church cannot lose. And so, yes, there's going to be dark and discouraging days. That's going to happen. There will be moments that we live in that are very difficult. But please remember, we are assured Jesus Christ is bringing us home. And everything is working according to plan. Notice verse 19, and we'll close out here with a couple more. He said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I'll be honest with you, those first few verses when I was studying it over, I was just like, man, this is going to be good. Then I got to verse 19. I thought, holy tornado, what are we getting into now, man? Binding and loosing and all this charismatic talk. I thought, this is going to go over well over there, yeah. Here's the thing to think about in some of these obscure statements. A little bit of digging and you might find some gold. And there's a lot of it right here in verse 19. This is kind of rabbinical talk, what he's giving them. Um, I would say kind of like inside baseball sort of talk here for these men. As Jews, they would have perfectly understood this. The language that he's using is very mosaic law. It would be akin to if you and I were watching some type of courtroom trial, we would understand some of the lingo that is being passed around that may not necessarily catch everybody's eyes, but certainly these men, when they hear this, they're going to pick up on what he's saying, this loosing and binding, because... Whenever a Jewish person in this day and time was found up against the law, whether it be a legal situation or something that needed to be worked out, a dispute for that matter, the phrases binding or, or bound and loose uh, would always be used. And to put it this way, anytime you'd see the word loosing, it's, it's the idea of permitting or allowing. But in this context, so beautifully put, it's the idea of being freed from underneath the law. You're forgiven. And in a conference of assurance, ladies and gentlemen, if anybody can declare anybody free, it's Jesus Christ. He says, Peter, you now have authority. Not you, but the word of God gives you authority to look at somebody and say, because you have confessed Christ as Lord, you are free. And we know the famous verse, in whom the Son sets free, folks. <laughs> is free indeed you are loose he's telling peter brother you are free to tell these people they're assured in jesus christ it's not works they don't live under the law anymore they don't have to measure up i'm building my church on grace but notice he also says of the binding this is very interesting that's simply talking about prohibiting or forbidding but the sad reality is Peter, you also have to tell people that some of them are still under the law and they need to be saved. And how many times have we shared Christ with somebody and they simply look at you and say, I don't want anything to do with that. I refuse. It's our obligation at that point in time. Yes, pray for that person, but remind them, friend, you are still under the curse then. 
You're an enemy of God. You are still bound in your sins. And you need to be saved. You need to confess Christ and put your trust in him. Repent and receive this free gift. And so he reminds Peter, Peter, on the authority of the word of God, you get to tell people that. You get to tell people the assurance of salvation, but you also get to tell people the good news. You can be set free from sin, but if you reject Christ, you are still bound. And there's no one certainly to blame but for you. And the application for the text here is very clear. You know, it's not giving Peter some kind of, you know, special keys. I hear people saying that like this is some kind of like non or fictional book somehow, and it's all mysticism. He's getting something that all he can use for what appears to be some supernatural ability to bind up things or loose things in a spiritual sense. But that's taking it too far and looking into the text and areas that simply just aren't there. And sadly, though, some have done that. They take this idea of binding and loosing too far, and it's just, well, I can speak over this, and I can speak over that, I'll say this, and I'll say that, and that is not what he's talking about because the fundamental problem with that is this. You think the authority lies in you, and it doesn't. The authority lies in the Word of God. It's not me. It's the Word of God that has this authority. And so in thinking about that, to declare someone forgiven of their sins or still bound under the law and sin and deserving of judgment, it doesn't come from my authority. It comes from God's authority that we can say that to these people. In other words, this, you're assured because the Bible says so. You don't need Jeremiah Rahner's assurance. No, you get heaven's assurance that you are free indeed, friend. But you also get heaven's assurance of this. If you do not call upon the name of the Lord, you are not saved. And you need to know that, Christian, that when you say that to that person, that is not harsh or cruel, but that is rightly dividing the truth. It is actually you caring about that soul more than this world could ever imagine. And he's telling Peter, you have assurance to do that, Peter. Please share that with these people. And so we simply say, on what basis is there authority? What's on the word of God? And that's exactly what the church is built on. And so as we move on here, we think about this idea because authority being not found in ourselves but in the word of God and so we have to keep wrestling with that it's not based on your position folks just because you're a pastor of a church an elder doesn't give you authority to declare that over anybody's life it doesn't matter what your education or your experience levels or any possessions or personal attributes that you might have the only authority that we have is the word of God I love what John Owen said he said God speaks by the church but he speaks nothing by her but what he speaks in the scriptures. That's a good statement. And so this is where the assurance lies, and it teaches us the church that Jesus is building is not built on uncertainty, but it's built on the assurance that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Why? Because the Bible says so. That's why. Finally, verse 20 as we close it out here. A very odd statement, seemingly, on the surface. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So strange, isn't it? After all that profound truth he gave him, you think Peter would be ready to jump up and tell the world what he had just heard. Hey, the church can't be stopped. Come to Christ. He's the Messiah, Jesus. Here he is. Repent. Be saved. No. He says, Peter, whatever you do, 
Don't go tell anybody yet. You imagine telling that to a man that would jump out of a boat in the middle of a storm to walk to somebody? I teach school for a living. You know how hard it is to keep a kid in their seat for just 20 minutes? Much less 90 sometimes? Can you imagine handing them that kind of truth and saying, hey, whatever you do, sit on that, okay? That's crazy. That's like setting somebody over a big fire and saying, don't move, just hang tight, all right? It's crazy when you think about this. It's almost like it doesn't even belong there, doesn't it? Like you read that and you think, well, whoever translated that one, buddy, they were off that day. I think somebody did a little bit of adding in there. But no, that's not true. Because we know that because John six fifteen explains why this is true. John 6, one of the great stories of all time about Jesus. They come to hear him teach. It's late in the evening. Everybody's hungry. The disciples say, we probably need to go and just get on out of here, let these people go home and eat. And Jesus says, no, we'll go feed them. <laughs> Only Jesus could say that. And they look around and they think, man, are you kidding? There's a kid here. He's got a handful of food. Lord, there's no way. He says, you make them sit down. I'm going to show you what a way looks like. And the Bible says one of the greatest miracles ever recorded. All four Gospels talk about this. Jesus Christ multiplied a handful of food and fed thousands and thousands of people. You think, praise God for that. And I amen that. But verse 15 is just telling. They immediately say they ran up to Jesus and tried to apprehend him to make him king. Think about that. They grab him and think, we've got to take this man. We've got to put the robe and crown on him. If he can do that, surely he can take out Rome. Think of the economic reform we would have if, if this man was on the throne. We'd get rid of Caesar. All the governors easily would be better than them. We just need a, a little change. And the Bible says at the end of verse 15 that when they tried to do that to Jesus, he departed away into a mountain privately. He didn't want it. And the point to be made here is this. Why would he do such a thing? And it's really simple. Because their view of Jesus as Messiah is completely skewed. It's completely skewed. Friend, they didn't want a Savior who dealt with sin. They wanted a Savior who dealt with Rome. Hey, go fix that. I'll stay here, but you fix that. And when you're done there, will you go clean this area up for me as well? That'll really make life convenient. Just whatever you do, don't tell me that I'm going to stand before Almighty God one day. Let's leave that to the wayside. And Jesus says these people are simply not ready for that. They want economic and personal problems and inconveniences to go away. And what he's telling Peter here is this. Don't let them know just yet who I truly am because their views are upside down about me and it's only going to cause more problems. He's relaying to Peter here what we all need to know about the true kingdom of God and the church that Jesus is going to build, which is this, and this is the last point here. It is not built on superficiality. It's not. It's not some earthly, temporary, shallow, materialistic, political, economic type changes that, frankly, folks, you and I could probably do a lot of. Nothing really supernatural about those things. It's also not about signs and wonders. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible that ought to be repeated more often 
Jesus said, and even an adulterous generation demand a sign. And the reason is, is because you don't want Jesus. You just want the things of Jesus. Yeah, I want the healing, but I don't want the healer. I want the blessings, but I don't want the blesser. I want the salvation, but I don't want the Savior. Friend, I hate to tell you, that person doesn't exist. You don't get one without the other because you wouldn't even have one if there wasn't the other. And so his entire ministry is summed up very simply. It is about the salvation of souls. It is not some superficial fix for people in a temporary moment. Their expectations of Jesus at that time were so off. And in a modern sense, this is very interesting, you could almost say they were already believing the prosperity gospel. It was really being proclaimed at that time. We want these things at the hands of that man, and we want all the power he's got, but I don't want to live under his authority, really. And so the truth remains that we can't water down and reduce the message of Jesus Christ into what the world would want to crave of it, though, because Jesus is far more than some superficial message about a change in temporary circumstances. His church is not built on such things, and I would say this, praise God for that. It is built on so much more. It's built on truth. It's built on the sacrificial lamb that was once given for us that you and I would never have to pay for that again. It's built on the grace of God that is freely given to wicked people who don't deserve it and yet is lavished on us because of Jesus Christ. So yes, I'll take the salvation and praise God, I'll take the Savior too while I'm at it, amen. I will most certainly glory in the blessings, but I would much rather know the blesser and this is the good news about the church. He's building it. We're graciously part of it. We're being used to carry that out. Nothing and no one can stop that perfect plan. And all of this, this is good news for us, rest on the Savior and not on you and I. So tomorrow, and as I close out here, and you and I get to go to church, remember, preacher, it's not about how you preach. It's about who's being preached it's not about how many gathered together it's about the fact that Jesus is going to build it regardless of the number that's there you go home tomorrow afternoon after your service and rest on this fact everything's going according to plan and you and I get to be a part of that amen let's close out in prayer father again we love you thank you for your word it's precious we needed it Thank you for our time together today, and thank you for the saints gathered. And I pray that we all rest together in the finished work of Jesus Christ, knowing that the church building is not going to be built by us. It's not going to be built because of us, but it's going to be built through and by you. It will be founded on you. And, Lord, you're bringing it home, and we thank you for that and that glorious truth. And, God, help us as individuals, as members and church leaders as we carry out our duties tomorrow that you've given us, that we do it with joy and a smile and a rest in your finished work. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.